That is a wonderful piece of music. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 once again this morning. And uh, we're down around verses 18 through 22. And uh, last week we came to five conclusions, and we're nailing down some conclusions as we go. I'll review those very quickly. Conclusion number one was Peter is referring to Christ's death and resurrection in chapter 3, verse 18b, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit as a reference to Jesus' death and resurrection. Second, in the statement being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, Peter's point is not the contrast two aspects of Christ's nature, i.e. physical nature versus his spiritual nature. That, that's not the point of that expression. Three, the statement is contrasting two states of Christ's existence. His pre-resurrection state of humiliation in the flesh and his post-resurrected state of power and glory. For the spirits in this prison are non-human spirits. Five, the spirits in this prison are evil. And God exercising judgment has imprisoned them since the days of Noah. Okay, those were our five conclusions last week. Now today, I want to just make one introductory comment here. One reason why we have difficulty with 1 Peter 3 perhaps, is that we've been strongly influenced by the materialistic worldview that we swim in. We tend to dismiss the existence of spiritual beings, good and evil, which are neither human nor God. And we tend to exist that whole category of spiritual beings. We just dismiss that. And, of course, we are ridiculed that to believe in such things is superstitious, primitive religion. Okay, did you realize that? You are superstitious and primitive. Okay, and, uh, well, if they had that right, I think we ought to believe it, right? If the ancient world believed in spirits and demons and they were right, ought we not believe in that? Think about it. They were right, weren't they? They were right. There is a spiritual world, good and evil, and it is populated. So to dismiss the existence of such beings can lead us to think incorrectly about Christ's work and power. This is a major area about Christ's work and power. And to dismiss that whole realm of existence is to diminish the power and the work of Christ. Isn't it? Think about that. It really is. And we don't want to do that, and Peter doesn't want to do that. And it's to diminish our need for him to save us. Right? The fact that the world is full of evil spirits... And they're not your friend. (laughs) How are you going to be saved from them? Huh? (laughs) How's humanity going to be delivered? 
or we're going to end up in the flood again. So, I think this materialism has infected us some and infected our thinking. That's not a good thing. Now, there is little doubt that we descendants of Adam are entirely capable on our own of filling this world with evil. <laughs> okay? We can do that on our own. However, in the real world, this realm of evil spirits has a significant influence in promoting evil. It just does. Ephesians 2, 3 reads like this, refers to what? The prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Is there anywhere on the earth where there's no air? No. So is there anywhere on the earth where the prince of the power of the air is not having some kind of influence upon humanity? No. He's the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who works in uh, what kind of people? Sons of disobedience constantly stirring up rebellion against God. Right? That's what evil spirits do. They want humanity to rebel against God's authority. That's how it started in the garden, right? Sons of disobedience. The spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. That, the sons of disobedience is everyone who's not bowed the knee to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the sons of disobedience. All humanity that has not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus are the sons of disobedience. And Ephesians 6.12 informs us that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So all that is very real. So as we continue today, we will remain focused on trying to understand as best we can things in this passage. And when we reach verse 22 in chapter 4, not today, maybe next week, then we'll draw out some very practical applications of all of what we're learning here. So we're going to focus on trying to understand these things. So in verse 19, we are told that in this condition of resurrection power, Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. Perhaps I should read this passage again to us this morning. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, or made alive in Spirit. By whom, verse 19 is what we're getting to this morning, by whom also, or in which also, is the preferred translation, in which, in this state of power, in which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eighteen souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, which now saves us, baptism. 
Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So we're right in the middle of of that paragraph. So what did Christ proclaim to the evil spirits in this prison? What was the message that he brought to them? When we read our New Testaments with the materialism glasses removed, we see that a major aspect of the gospel of Christ is that Jesus is the one who has gained the decisive victory over the evil spirits of the non-material world. We learn that. He has gained that victory over the evil, non-material spirits of the world. Now that is good news indeed, isn't it? Absolutely. And in Colossians 2.15, I had that passage read for the last verse that Mike read, which was verse 15. And it says this regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul lists a whole list of accomplishments And the final accomplishment that Paul lists in that passage is this. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, the cross. And that text speaks of Jesus' triumph over the evil principalities and power, and actually dishonoring them, making this public spectacle of their defeat. Now, the public spectacle refers to the ancient practice of the conquering king during the victory parade, the conquering king takes the conquered king who is in chains and bonds and parades the humiliated king through the streets while the streets are all lined with cheers to our king. And, and he makes a public spectacle of the conquered king. That's the, that's the illustration that Paul is using in 2.15. So Paul is saying, just like that conquering king made a public spectacle in the humiliation of the king conquered, that's what Jesus has done, okay? Through his cross, resurrection, and ascension. In the evil spiritual world, he has humiliated the entire evil spiritual world through the cross, And he has done that publicly, not among you and I, publicly among them. That's what Colossians 2.15 is teaching, and I believe 1 Peter 3 is is teaching the the same thing. So I suggest that the message the resurrected Jesus proclaimed to the evil non-human spirits in this prison was along the lines of announcing his victory, their defeat, and the certainty of their future judgment. 
And not only to the evil spirits presently in this prison, but to all the rest like them who have not yet been imprisoned. He made that proclamation. Their defeat, his victory, and the certainty of their future judgment. Their future incarceration is now inevitable since Jesus Christ has endured the days of his flesh, died in the flesh, and has been made alive in the Spirit, and risen from the dead, and sat down at the right hand of God. According to Paul, we are to know, quote, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And we are to know the exceeding greatness of that power. And that power is displayed not in, not in just victory over humans. It's victory over the principalities in the evil principalities in the heavenly places or those that are locked up in this prison awaiting future judgment. So, It helps to understand that the public shaming of evil spirits began during Jesus' earthly ministry, didn't it? Even in the days of his humiliation, Jesus began to publicly shame the evil spirits. Remember the unclean spirits crying out in the presence of Jesus? Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay. (laughs) They are afraid of Jesus of Nazareth. And they're hoping he will kind of just disappear from the scene. They've had free reign. They've had free reign up until this point. They've deceived all the nations. Read it in Revelation 12. They have had free reign to deceive all the nations until Jesus shows up and begins to exercise his public ministry. Remember the case of the the Gadarene demoniac? I mean, that gives you chills. Jesus questioned the evil spirits as to what was their name. They answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. Mark records that all the demons begged him, saying, They begged Jesus in the days of his flesh. Yeah, they are Legion. And what do we see? A legion of demons begging 
Jesus of Nazareth. They begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. They know they are going to be cast out of this human soul. That poor man we call the Gadarene demoniac. Their dwelling place is over. And they're begging him to send them into the swine. He's making a public display of them, isn't he? Even in the days of his flesh. This is before he's resurrected and exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus illustrated this uncontested power over evil with his parable, you know, that that the strong man keeps everything bound in his house unless a stronger man comes and binds the strong man and then the stronger man plunders his house. Well, that whole display with the gathering demoniac is just that. The strong man, yeah, we are legion. And that man was bound. And nobody could chain him or do anything with him. But a stronger man came. And they're down on their knees begging. And the stronger man binds the evil strong man. And then what? Plunders the house. He binds Satan and then plunders that house and drives out all the evil spirits. Jesus is that stronger one that comes. So we could go on. There's many more examples. My point is this public dishonoring of the evil spirits, Jesus' public ministry is a harbinger of that. It's an announcement of that. This is going to happen. And can you imagine what happened uh, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God and, and Satan and Gabriel fought and, and Gabriel prevailed and there was no place left and they were cast down to the earth? The devil and his angels were defeated because this child was caught up to heaven and sat down and a war broke out in heaven. And they were, Satan was cast out and all the evil angels with him. It was what we saw in his public ministry a thousand, thousand times magnified. That's right. That's right. Read Revelation 12. It's laid out there very clearly. That's not something that's going to happen in the future. That happened when Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God. And since that happened, it opened the doors for the gospel to be preached around the globe. And the nations would no longer be deceived by these evil spirits. That's all plain. Okay, I don't care what your eschatology is. These are just plain. Whatever version of eschatology you have, uh, I hope you believe in this <laughs> regarding the Lord Jesus. So, these displays of Jesus' defeat of evil spirits, I've already said that, took place in the days of his flesh. Now, we do not know what degree of knowledge Satan has and what, has, what he's been allowed to know and what he doesn't know. But I, I'm only guessing, but I think Jesus' resurrection was not known. 
to Satan. I'm guessing, but I, I suspect it was not. And Revelation chapter 12 fits into this landscape, which I've already said. When the child in Revelation 12, which the dragon tried to destroy, is caught up to God, Satan and his angels are cast out. The evil spirit world is in two states, isn't it? Some are incarcerated, which Peter is referring us to. Some are incarcerated. And some are still let loose. The proclamation of Christ's victory seems to have been made to all those incarcerated and those who are still on the loose. So that's the proclamation. Jesus' victory over them and the death they cause and their defeat and the certainty of their future judgment. The proclamation that Peter is referring to is down, is down those lines. Now, in regard to Jesus proclaiming to evil spirits in prison, does Peter assume his readers are familiar with the Enoch tradition and the book of First Enoch? Is he assuming that? You know, in the non-canonical Jewish apocalyptic literature, the book of First Enoch contains parallels with our passage as well as parallels with Jude. And Jude verse 14 actually refers to one of Enoch's prophecies. And relating to our text, First Enoch chapters 12 through 13 contained a description of the imprisonment of the fallen angels and Enoch's commission to go and declare God's judgment upon them. And there's nothing in First Enoch that encourages the idea of a post-mortem opportunity for salvation. It teaches the opposite. K. Jobes summarizes a portion of First Enoch saying this, quote, The watchers, fallen angels, the watchers appeal to Enoch to intercede with God on behalf of themselves and their, and their evil prodigy they have produced. And that's through the Genesis thing with the women. Okay? And this is in Enoch now. And so the, the watchers appeal to Enoch to intercede with God on behalf of themselves and their prodigy, their evil prodigy, they have produced. Enoch obliges and returns with God's proclamation to the watchers, quote, You will not be able to ascend into heaven until all eternity, but you shall remain inside the earth imprisoned all the days of eternity, end quote. Okay, so they're not getting out. <laughs> and Enoch went and proclaimed uh, in that book, uh, <clears throat> that's what's in the book. So I think, yes, I think, I think these passages are influenced. Uh, that book was very well known. And, you know, uh, canonical authors have the right to quote 
verses and phrases from non-canonical literature. There's no problem with that. Okay? The fact that they use pieces of that makes those pieces is canonical. I mean authoritative. Okay? So it's likely that Peter thinks and understands that his readers have this idea of proclamation of God's condemnation to spirits in prison. Okay, that that's not a new idea to them, okay, if they've, if they've read the book of Enoch, which was quite popular among, among the, uh, Jewish, uh, the Jewish people, and even somewhat known in Asia Minor. Uh, that's a different question in itself. So, yeah, I think, I think these passages are influenced uh, by that uh, non-canonical book. Now, moving on, to our text, our next question, what else can we know about this prison? In verse 20, Peter tells us that these evil spirits who are now in prison were formerly disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So Peter is referring to the time period to God's judgment of the universal flood, isn't he? God delayed that universal judgment 120 years while Noah built the ark. So Peter's reference to what was occurring during the days of Noah is parallel with statements he makes in his second letter regarding the antediluvian period, that is, the period before the flood, the history before the universal flood. We read in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 11, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight persons, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on all the world of the ungodly. Okay, and I think Peter does in that chapter, go chronologically. In other words, that judgment uh, that he refers to of the uh, angels who had sinned, that took place either at the time of the flood or prior to it. Now the term translated... Tartarus, the term translated Tartarus, uh, yeah, the term translated Tartarus here, it's translated hell, the Greek term is Tartarus. Quoting, uh, quoting the lexicon, Tartarus thought of by the Greeks as a subterranean place lower than Hades where divine punishment was meted out, and also regarded as such in Israelite apocalyptic literature. 
We're talking about Second Peter here where, where he says, Who sin but cast them down to hell. Okay, there the term is Tartarus. Uh, normally the term in your Gospels for hell is Gehenna. But a different term is used here, though it's still translated hell in all of our English translations. But it's a different term. But Tartarus is likely synonymous with Gehenna, commonly translated hell in the Gospels. It is the place of punishment in the next life, normally referred to as hell in our English translations. And the Isbe, quote, in Greek mythology, Tartarus was the locale below Hades where the Titans were imprisoned. So Jude also mentions Jude also mentions evil angels, quote, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Okay? So we got a prison populated on death row. Okay? The judgment has not yet come, but they are imprisoned and they're not getting out. Okay? And they're there until the judgment of the great day. So I think it's likely that spirits in prison in 1 Peter 3.19 and the angels who were cast into hell and committed to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment prior to the universal flood, Second Peter, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their proper abode, whom God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day of Jude 6. All three of these are referring likely to the same group of evil spiritual beings. Likely. And to them, the resurrected, ascended Jesus proclaimed his victory over them. And he did that after he rose and ascended to heaven to the right hand of, hand of God. Some actually think the ascension itself was the proclamation. Okay? But obviously, those imprisoned have become aware of the eminent destruction and defeat of all evil spirits. Okay? And that's exactly what you see in Revelation 12, if, if, you, if you read uh, Revelation, Revelation 12. So I think those things are, are relatable. Okay, so regarding the historical timeline, we can... Um, the historical timeline, we can conclude that at least by the time of the universal flood, this spirit prison was populated with these evil non-human spirits. Okay. And they are reserved for the final judgment to come. Okay, that's when this place was populated. Which also tells you, prior to that point, they are all on the loose. Right? Prior to them being imprisoned, prior to the flood, that pre-flood world, 
These evil beings that are now imprisoned were all on the loose in that antediluvian world. Okay? Which leads us, moving on to verse 20, we learn when we learn when these evil spirits had a corrupting influence on the earth. Who, in verse 20, who, referring to these evil spirits, formerly were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Okay. So this takes us to Genesis 6 and the universal flood and Noah. Now, I doubt that the precise details of what led up to the universal's flood will ever be clearly understood. Okay? We, do not, we do know that God destroyed all of humanity with the exception of eight people. And if we understand Genesis 6-4, that is, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, if we understand that to be referring to some interaction between evil spirits and women, or, I think more likely, or the interaction of men, the interaction of women with men possessed by evil spirits, okay, that's a possibility there, these are men possessed by evil spirits, if we understand it that way, these evil spirits were significant contributors to the human depravity that filled the earth at that time. The Lord's descriptions of the state of the earth are in Genesis 6. I'm going to read two of them. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Six eleven through 13. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence. Through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So there. These evil spirits were imprisoned during the flood judgment or during the 120 years while Noah was preparing the ark. 
I tend to think the former, that is, at the time of the flood, that's when they were imprisoned. Since the Lord said in Genesis 6-3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. There's a period of time there, it seems, that uh, they were still, there's 120 more years. And uh, so we can't nail that down precisely. But you see, the Lord delayed the judgment while Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household. So there was either two judgments, one of the spirit world prior to that 120 years, but it seems more reasonable. But at this universal judgment of the flood, it judged man and evil spirits all at the same time at that flood judgment is when this took place. Okay, And of course, the Lord is preparing the earth to be repopulated without this group of evil spirits uh, on the loose this time. They've been, they destroyed, they corrupted the first earth <laughs> and they're imprisoned. And the Lord's going to repopulate the earth, but these evil spirits are not going to have free reign as they did prior to the flood. I, I don't know what else to tell you. That's all the information that, that I have. So, um, the Lord delayed that judgment while what? Noah prepared an ark of his household, and listen to this, by which he condemned the world. And during the 120 years, Noah was what? A preacher of righteousness, obviously warning of God's coming judgment. So Noah is condemning the world during that 120 years, and he's a preacher of righteousness during that period of time. And he is announcing this coming, this coming judgment. So, that 120-year delay, thus, with Noah's preaching of righteousness and Noah condemning the world, thus, God did this in a way that no charge can be brought against God's display of justice. After 120 years of Noah condemning the world by building the ark, and being a preacher of righteousness to that generation, they were all left without an excuse. God's judgment came as no surprise. Okay? So, now, at this point, hmm. <laughs> you know what? 11.58. <laughs> All right. And my notes say this is the heaviest lifting for today, not what we've been through, what we're about to do. <laughs> and your mental muscles uh, are already, uh, we'll stop. Uh, we'll, we'll go on. So uh, we've answered a few questions. Let's see. Have we answered, have we added any more conclusions? We might have added uh, one. Uh, <clears throat> let me let me hold on here. <laughs> I think we added one conclusion. Yeah, conclusion number six. 
Oh, in seven. Okay, conclusion number six. The proclamation to the spirits in prison was that, uh, was that of Christ's decisive, complete victory over all evil spirits and their powers of the non-material world and the certainty of their future judgment. That, the pro- that's the proclamation. Number seven, the prison is called Tartarus, which very likely is synonymous with hell. And I can't get to uh, conclusion number eight. Um, actually, I can. Conclusion number eight, the imprisoned evil spirits were likely major influences for evil in the before-flood world that God totally destroyed. Okay. So those are a few more, few more conclusions. And we'll get to Noah... And we'll get, to, we'll get to being saved through water. And that baptism now saves you. We will, we will get to that uh, next... No, it'll be two weeks from now. Okay? So you're going to have to wait two weeks to learn how baptism now saves you. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> just keep reading the text and it'll, it'll be explained. Let's pray. Lord... Uh, your universe is a big place. And evil is significant. But we can see here that you are uncontestably in control of both good and evil. And Lord, that comforts us. We know your judgments are righteous and they're just. And you have spared us those judgments because of your Son. Lord, we tremble to think that there was no offer of mercy from you, Lord, to these imprisoned spirits. There was no opportunity. And yet, you've given that to us. Thank you, Lord. May we not waste our 120 years before the final judgment of all evil, Lord. But may we seek You and pursue You and accept Your offers of mercy now. Thank You, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.